be with you, Faith Church. Uh, as Mike said, we have been good friends for almost four years now. And just a little history about our friendship. Uh, it began even before my family moved out here. Mike's been out in Albuquerque for, what, six months, nine months longer than we have. And uh, our churches were transitioning pastors kind of around the same time. And your elders really helped our church uh, through that. But before I even came out here, Mike sent me an email, the first pastor that reached out to me from Albuquerque and said, hey, when you get out here and you get settled, just send me an email and we'll go and we'll have lunch. And so he took me out to Chipotle my first week out here and we have had a good friendship uh, ever since. And mo- most of the time it does revolve around food. Uh, this is how we knew the friendship would be a good one because we both love really good food. We actually took a trip to Indianapolis together this past year and a lot of that trip trip revolved around great food and primarily we we really like sweets right there is a soft uh, spot in each of our hearts for really good sweet things and for me especially and and I think for Mike as well primarily I love chocolate now I think there's two people in the world there are people that like chocolatey desserts and there are people who prefer fruitier desserts, like key lime pie or strawberry shortcake or things like that. And I am definitely in the chocolatey dessert category. To me, a fruity dessert is more like a side to the entree, not necessarily a dessert. Are there any chocolate dessert fans? Let's go ahead and divide the congregation right at the beginning. All right. Now, when I was growing up, I really only ever knew of one type of chocolate, right? And I grew up on milk chocolate. You know, it's sweet, it's milky, it's delicious, it's wonderful. But when I got married to my wife, Jenny, who's on the front row here, and she preferred a different type of chocolate than I preferred. And I remember one night we were sitting and watching a movie and we were both eating Uh, eating bits off of uh, different chocolate bars. And she gave me a piece of her chocolate. Now, her chocolate was 93% dark chocolate. (laughs) Now, you can tell just by that that there's another division getting ready to happen in this church. Now, if you're used to milk chocolate... And somebody hands you a piece of 93% dark chocolate, you are in for quite a surprise. That was a night I didn't know our marriage would survive. (laughs) The chocolate was so bitter, I began to think, how in the world do these two pieces come from the same thing? Jen went on to inform me that Dark chocolate is more original to what real cocoa is like, that it's more natural for it to be bitter and that a bunch of stuff has to get added into it for it to be milk chocolate. How could something so sweet arise from something so bitter? That's exactly what we're going to ask of the text this morning. How can something so sweet arise from something so bitter. So if you have your Bibles, open up this morning to the book of Genesis chapter 26, and we're going to begin in verse 34, Genesis chapter 26, verse 34. Down at Center City Church, we are working our way through the the Jacob and Esau narrative in Genesis. 
It's really been a, a great study, a great look, and we are going through a series called The Lies That We Believe, because Jacob is a chronic liar. He is a man who believes lies, and he is a man who tells lies. And the whole section is just enveloped with lie after lie after lie after lie. And this morning, we are going to look at the lie of bitterness. Let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on. Jacob's parents are named Isaac and Rebekah. They got married, and for the first 20 years of their marriage, they struggled with infertility. Rebekah longed to have children, but was unable to have children of her own. Until one day, it says that her husband Isaac prayed for her, and God listened to his prayer and gave her children. It was a rather rough pregnancy, So rough, in fact, that she actually goes to the Lord and she says, you know, Lord, I don't think that everything is right inside of me. I don't know what it's like to be pregnant, but I imagined it being a whole lot different than what it is. And the Lord says, you're right. Surprise, you're having twins. And these two twins are going to wrestle with one another throughout the entirety of your life. And you're going to be surprised at which one is going to win this wrestling match. It's not going to be the older one. It's not going to be the stronger one. But it's going to be the younger one who will end up leading this family. And the older will actually serve the younger. So then we see this birth of these two twins who we know as Jacob and Esau. And Esau came out of the womb and it says that Esau was a hairy man. And so they named him Harry, which is what Esau means in Hebrew. And so that was his name. Could you imagine naming your child Harry? I guess some do, but not H-A-I-R-Y. But that's how Esau got his name. Well, partway Uh, Through the the birth canal, Esau begins to get tugged back into the womb. Jacob has grabbed the hill of Esau and begins to pull him back inside of his mother. So they finally get Esau out and they pull Jacob out and they name Jacob what what equates to supplanter or a, a heel grabber or one who tries to overreach beyond where he is. And those two names will play a vital role in the passage that we are going to look at. This wrestling begins to go out throughout Jacob and Esau's life, and we really begin to see it in this camping trip that Jacob and Esau have with one another. Well, they're out camping, and they're taking the flocks, and they are uh, taking the flocks to a place where there's more grass and more food for them to be able to graze. And Esau loved to hunt, and so he is out, and he is hunting one day, presumably to, to bring back some, uh, some meat for their dinner. And he comes back, and he, he's empty-handed. He goes out hunting, doesn't come back with anything. And as we often know, when you come back from a hunting trip or a fishing trip or a shopping trip empty-handed, we can be a little bit cranky, can we not? And that was exactly what Esau came back. And he was really hungry and he smelled this delicious stew that Jacob had been making. Jacob's making this wonderful stew. And Esau is so overwhelmed by the smell of the stew that he says, Give me some of that red stuff. Jacob, being the deceiver that he is, takes the moment here, takes this opportunity to get something from his brother Esau. You see, there were these certain rights that were given to the firstborn child in this culture. It was called the birthright, and it would have been an extra portion of the inheritance. And essentially, Jacob sells a bowl of soup 
for an extra portion of his father's inheritance, which may have amounted to what would be equivalent of millions of dollars as Jacob or Isaac's going to die a very wealthy man. All for a bowl of soup. But that's not the end of their wrestling match. It's going to continue on into the passage that we are going to look at this morning. So, in your Bibles, if you would, follow along in Genesis 26, beginning in verse 34. It says that when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Be'eri, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. We're starting this sermon at the end of chapter 26 because this entire story is going to be bookended by Esau's marriage to four different women. And notice that this marriage says made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. We're going to see four different bitter sections in this passage. Four bitter sections that encompass, that, that kind of outline this passage for us. And the first one is a bitter marriage. You know, there's some places in the Bible where I wish the author would have given us just a little bit more information. You ever read parts of your Bible and think, I wish they would have just told us a little bit more about this passage. I would have loved to have known how these women made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. But my guess is we have enough experience with in-laws and our own families that we can probably fill in the gaps pretty well here. We can think about our own experiences with family where bitterness arises and probably get pretty close to what must have happened here to make life so bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. This is not just referencing a couple of hard days in the family. This is a type of bitterness that is so emotionally painful for Isaac and Rebecca that by the end of this passage, Rebecca is going to say that I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob were to marry women like this, then it would be better if I wasn't even alive. It's the same word for bitterness that Naomi in the book of Ruth, the mother-in-law of Ruth, whose name Naomi meant pleasant and good will change her name after the death of her husband and her two sons to Mara, which is the same word for bitterness. It's the same word that's used in Job chapter 20 when one of Job's friends named Zophar is equating this to the poison of a cobra, the bitterness that would result from heartache. So we see that the bitterness is a deep emotional pain that has affected Isaac and Rebecca. See, some of you know that type of bitterness. You know the type of pain that has arisen from what may be perceived or actually unfair, unjust situations. 
times where life didn't turn out the way that you expected it to? Or a relationship wasn't as fulfilling as you thought it was going to be? A job that left you bitter towards a boss or a coworker? That's the type of emotional pain that Isaac and Rebecca feel as a result of this marriage. The book of Hebrews describes bitterness like a plant, calls it a root of bitterness, a plant that begins to put down roots into your soul and into your heart. My wife and I love growing raised garden beds, and we love to grow plants and vegetables in those garden beds. It's always amazing to me at the beginning of every spring how small those little seeds are. And you just put them in the ground. And and the first couple years we did this, I thought there is no way that we are going to get plants from these little seeds. We're going to water them and all this. But I don't even know how this seed is going to sprout something that's firm enough to make it up through the dirt. And sure enough, every year, those seeds begin to sprout. And those seeds begin to put down roots. And it begins to grow and begins to get a little bit bigger. And before you know it, it starts to be a pepper that comes off of that pepper plant. Or tomato that comes off the tomato plant. And then at the end of every year, we pull those plants up. And you begin to see how deep those roots went down into the garden. The book of Hebrews says that's exactly how bitterness works in your life and in my life. It begins as just a a little seed that is planted from a situation that is perceived to be unfair or unjust or maybe actually is unfair and unjust in your life. And when that bitterness goes unchecked, it begins to sprout, begins to put down roots, And before you know it, it begins to produce fruit that you would never want growing on the tree of your life. We're going to see that progression throughout this passage. This marriage is going to be like the seed that is planted for Isaac and Rebekah and is going to create great conflict and great disaster and disorder in this family. So let's move on and look at the next bitter section in this passage. We've seen a bitter marriage, but next we're going to see a bitter blessing. Look with me in chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. It says that when Isaac was old, his eyes were dim, so that he could no longer see. And he called, called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, My son, Esau answered, Here I am. So he said, Behold, I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. Take your weapons, your quiver, your bow. Go out to the field and hunt game for me. Prepare for me delicious food such as I love. Bring it to me so that I may eat and that my soul may bless you before I die. On the surface of things, this passage looks like maybe it's taking a turn for the better. Right here we've had this, this bitterness in Isaac's life. And now he's wanting to go and bless his son, the son that's actually been the source of the bitterness for him. But there's a couple clues in this passage that 
what's about to happen is not going to end well. There's a couple of clues that Isaac's bitterness is beginning to shift from being directed towards Esau and his wives and beginning to be directed towards God. The first clue is that Isaac, by this point, is physically blind. It says that his eyes were dimmed. Now, there's nothing, uh, you know, about blindness per se that maps on to spiritual blindness, other than the Old Testament sometimes uses this as as kind of a, a literary device to show that a person who is physically blind is also operating out of spiritual blindness as well. Let me give you a couple examples. Let me give you one positive and one negative. So the negative example is you think about a person like Samson. Samson was a man that had great strength. A man that was given greater strength than anybody in all of the Old Testament. And yet, he was a man that even when he had his sight, was not operating out of faith. He never trusted the Lord in his life. In fact, he ended up one night while he was uh, with his girlfriend telling her what it was that made him so strong. He said, if you cut my hair, it'll take away my strength. She calls in the Philistine armies. They come in, they cut his hair. And what do they do when they take him into custody? They gouge out his eyes. His spiritual blindness is then manifested because now he is also physically blind as well. When you do not walk by faith, that then became manifested in Samson's life by the actual losing of his sight. Let me give you another example, but the reverse of this. Moses, at the end of his life, when Moses is pronouncing blessing on the Israelites at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says... That his eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. That means he was still full of life and passion even at the end of his life. So in contrast to a man like Isaac, whose physical blindness is, I believe, the manifestation then of the spiritual blindness that he was operating out of. Moses was a man who pronounced blessing, still following the Lord And still full of sight and passion. But the second clue in here is that he only calls Esau to bless. Now, Isaac has two children, Esau and Jacob. Later on in this book, at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob is going to call all of his sons for a blessing. That was the normal way of doing this. That was the custom, was to bless all of your sons. But here, Isaac is only calling one of his sons. Only calling Esau. And in fact, calling the one son that has made his life bitter. But there's another clue at the end of this section It says that he's calling him so that my soul may bless you before I die. You see, when Rebecca was pregnant with Jacob and Esau, God was very clear to Rebecca that it was the younger son who was going to be blessed and not the older son 
And here, Isaac is saying, I want my soul to bless you. Now, that's not the normal way we would say, I'm going to bless you. I would just say, Connor, come here. I'm going to, I'm going to bless you. I wouldn't say my soul is going to bless you. And I think what the author is cluing us into here is that Isaac's soul is in direct opposition to God's will. Isaac has set his soul in direct opposition to what God has called Isaac and Rebekah to do. And so, his blindness, his calling only his favored son, and his direct opposition to God's will, I think, are all pointing us to the fact that Isaac's bitterness, what began as being bitter because of Esau's wives, has now transitioned to a bitterness against God, to where he's no longer operating in faith, but operating according to his will and his desire. When you allow bitterness to go unchecked in your life, it will always turn towards bitterness against God. It will never stay against other people, but it will always be redirected towards God. I don't know why he was so bitter. We don't, we don't, we don't understand. We don't get the explanation other than the comment about the wives, about why he's no longer operating out of faith. But I think if we follow the progression of the story, we might be able to surmise a few different reasons. If you were to go back and read chapter 26, you would see how God directed Isaac and Rebekah through a number of really bad choices that he made, bringing them all the way to the city of Beersheba, the place that God brought Abraham, his father. A place that was supposed to be the land that God was going to give them. And God brings them in here after conflict, after conflict, after conflict. And I would imagine Isaac and Rebekah having a conversation that might have gone something like this. Isn't it great to be in Beersheba? Isn't it great to be in this land that God has promised to us? Everything from here on out is going to to just go so smoothly. This is exactly God's will for us. How could anything ever go wrong now that we are here in Beersheba? But the peace that Isaac and Rebekah longed for was actually met and followed by more conflict. What they thought God was going to provide for them was actually a little bit different than what actually happened. And I think that's how our bitterness begins to be redirected towards God. We expect God to operate In one way. We expect God to provide one thing in our lives. We expect blessing. And yet, God doesn't meet those expectations in the way that we had planned for him to. God, I've done everything right in my life. I've gone to church. I've I've been reading my Bible. I've been doing exactly what you called me to do. Why would you allow me to get sick? Why would you allow me to lose my job? Or maybe 
I brought my children up in the church. We did family devotions every night. And yet, why is my son or daughter straying from the faith? It's not what I planned for. It's not what I raised them to be. And yet, that bitterness begins to be redirected towards God. Because God is the one who did not meet the expectations that we had set for him. So we've seen a bitter marriage. We've seen a bitter blessing. Next, we're going to see a bitter deception. So here, Isaac is telling Esau what he wants to do. And unbeknownst to the two of them, Rebekah is right outside the tent listening to everything that is happening. She's very much like her mother-in-law, Sarah, who, if you remember, when the Lord comes to visit Abraham, she's right outside the tent. She probably has a little glass up against the door. She's listening to everything that goes on. And she even laughs when God tells them that they're going to have a child. So Rebecca has learned a few things from her mother-in-law. And so she's outside the gate or outside the tent and she's listening to what's going on in there. And can you imagine the thoughts running through Rebecca's mind? That's not what God promised. That's not what God said it was going to happen. God said it was the younger son that was going to be blessed. Not the older one. My husband's about to mess everything up. I better fix it. And so she very quickly, very decisively, it's almost like she's had this plan cooked up for years. It takes no thought. She goes to Jacob and she says, Jacob, I overheard that your father is going to bless Esau and only Esau. He's going to cut you out of the blessing. We got to do something. And so she tells him, I want you to go and I want you to get two goats from the flock. And I want you to kill him. And I'm going to make this stew that your father loves. Esau thinks he can make it, but I know how to make it just the way your father loves. And so bring me these goats and we're going to make up this stew. And I'm going to take it to your father. You're going to take it to your father. And he's going to give you the blessing and not Esau. And everything's going to work out great. And then Jacob says, Mom, I think you forgot of something. My brother is a hairy man. And Jacob says, but I, I am a smooth man. I moisturize. All it's going to take is one hand on my arm and my father is going to know that I am not Esau. What are we going to do about that? She says, don't worry. We're going to take the hair from the goat's. And we're going to put it on your arms and put it on the back of your neck so that if he touches your arm or touches your neck, he's going to know or he's going to think that you are Esau. What does that tell you about Esau's hair? That they're using goat hair to deceive his father. And so he goes and he gets the goats and they, they bring him and she makes the, makes the stew that her father loves or that her husband loves. And Jacob takes this stew into his father. And I love, this is probably one of my my favorite paragraphs in all of the Bible. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Jacob goes into his father and he says, my father, his father said, or he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said, I'm Esau, your firstborn. 
I've done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. Isaac said to him, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord, your God, has granted me success. Let me just stop right there and say, just because you say the Lord is in something doesn't mean the Lord is in it. You can say that the Lord is in something, but that does not mean that he is in it. We say that a lot of times to justify our sin. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing here. Well, the Lord has blessed my journey. I mean, I just went out and the the deer walked right into my sights. And it was like a hunting day I've never had before. The Lord must have been in it. There's a lot of things we say the Lord is in and he is not in it. Let's keep going. He says, verse 21, Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me so that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob goes near to Isaac, his father, and he knelt and he said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Isn't that a great line? (laughs) The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. This would be where I think if a father was really walking in faith. That he would have had the spiritual sight to see what was going on. And yet he wasn't. And so he says to him in verse 26. His father Isaac said, come near me and kiss me, my son, come near me. And he kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and he blessed him. What does that tell you about the smell of Esau? And he says, and he gives the blessing. See the smell of my son as as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine, and let the people serve you, and the nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And it's out of the bitterness of this chapter that arises the blessing of a father. The sweet and coveted blessing that both Jacob and Esau longed for arises in a way that no one would have ever guessed. No one would have expected. And yet you have the sweetness of blessing that arises from this bitter family situation. Isn't it great to know that God can use any bitter situation in our lives? Isn't it great to know that there is not a situation so bitter that it's beyond the reach of God's work? And here, in the midst of a family that is just quickly unraveling, we see exactly what God said was going to happen come to fruition. And the younger son is blessed over the older son. And so right in the midst of this bitter deception, we see the fourth and final part of bitterness, and it is Esau's bitter 
response. A bitter response. Jacob receives his father's blessing and realizes that my son's got to be coming back or my brother's got to be coming any time now. I better get out of this room. And so he leaves the tent in the Texas as soon as he left Esau entered almost as if Jacob leaves the back door. And as soon as the doors of the tent settle, Esau enters in with the game that he had caught and the food that he had prepared. And he goes and he says in verse uh, 31, he also prepared the delicious food and brings it to his father. And he says to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Can you imagine how excited Esau is in this moment? You can almost just hear it jumping off the page of this text. Father, I'm here. Arise, eat this meal that I prepared for you. It's going to be so good. This is why you love me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he said, what do you mean, dad? I'm your son. I'm your firstborn. I'm Esau. And he answered, or then Isaac trembled violently. And he said, who was it then that hunted the game and brought it to me? And I I, I ate it all before you came. And I had blessed him. And yes, he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me also, O my father. Can you imagine the pain that Esau must have felt in that moment? Can you imagine the sense of injustice and unfairness he must have felt? Probably beginning at his father's question, who are you? That's the point where our stomach just drops and you feel sick to your stomach. Do you see how the seed of bitterness here begins of the, the simple perception and, and, and reality that he has been treated unfairly? But Isaac says, Esau, I've, I've already given the blessing. I can't possibly transfer that blessing now to you. But he says, don't you have anything, Father, that you can give me? And in verse 39, Isaac gives him a blessing. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live. You shall serve your brother. And when you go restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. See, Esau received a blessing, but it wasn't the blessing he had planned for. It wasn't the one he expected from his father. Let me give you three descriptions of bitterness that I think we see in Esau's response. Three descriptions of bitterness. Number one is that bitterness is is blinding. It is blinding. 
You know, at no point in this passage does Esau ever say, well, you know what? I got exactly what I deserved. In fact, the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 recollects this story. It actually says that the root of bitterness calls us to get rid of the root of bitterness and uses Esau as the example. Who could care less about his birthright? Who could sell his birthright for a pot of stew? And then yet, here in this moment, be so greatly outraged at his brother's deception in his life. See, what happens with bitterness is a lot of times bitterness blinds us to our own sin and our own fault in a situation. We can become so bitter against somebody else that it's almost like putting blinders on a horse. We begin to get this tunnel vision where we could see the whole room and see the whole situation. And bitterness is like a slow blinding to where you no longer see what's on the outside, but you only see the anger and hatred that you have towards the person that you are bitter against. At no point does Esau say, you know what? I think I kind of deserve this. I didn't really care about the birthright. And so why should I have cared about the blessing? Why should I make a big deal about this? But he's also blinded to the fact that God's will was carried out. What God had planned even before their birth is being lived out in their lives. And his bitterness has blinded him to the work of God in their family's life. But not only is bitterness here blinding, but bitterness is also a source of comfort. Notice what it says in verse 41. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. See, one of the reasons you and I hang on to bitterness is because there's something oddly comforting about holding on to bitterness in our lives. It gives us a sense that we can right the wrong that was done to us. Bitterness tells you the lie that you can take the judge's seat and you can hand down the verdict that you think is just. And according to Esau, murder is the judgment that his brother deserves. He should be put to death for what he's done to me. And he uses that to comfort him. But not only is bitterness blinding and comforting, it's also increasing. You see, bitterness never just stays the same in your life. It it never just kind of plateaus. It's always growing. It's always developing. Just like the plant in your garden. As we water it with thoughts of vindication and revenge, it begins to grow a little bit bigger. begins to produce a little bit more fruit. Notice what it says towards the end of this passage. Esau, chapter 28, verse 6. Esau saw 
that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. That as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. It's exactly what Esau had done. Jacob obeyed his father and his mother, and he went to Padan Aram. And when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, he went to Ishmael and he took as his wife, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So it actually ends up with three wives. You see, what he knows his parents hated the most is exactly what he went to to get back at them. It's exactly the sentence that he carried out against his parents. I know something that my folks hate. They hate it when I marry foreign women. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go marry another one. See, bitterness will always take you further than you want to go. It will never leave you where you are, but it'll take you much further and far deeper than you ever planned and going. That's why when you ask people who are in conflict, how did this start? You know what the common phrase is? I have no idea. But I'll be the one who finishes it. That's the lie of bitterness. You say, great, pastor. I know I've got bitterness, and what do I do with it? You know, there's a, a passage in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2 where it refers back to Christ who was in an unfair situation if there ever was one. It says he was mocked, slandered, reviled. And when he had the opportunity to return reviling for reviling, when he had the opportunity to become bitter about the unfairness in his life, says that he did not revile when people reviled him. He did not get revenge when he suffered unjustly. But he says that he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. The bitterness in your life can only be healed by the wounds of Jesus Christ. They can only be healed as you lay the bitterness down at the foot of the cross. You see, because it was Christ who was in the unfair position, who, if there ever was injustice, was carried out on him. A perfect man, an innocent prisoner, put to death because of your sins and my sins. A man whose, whose own family should have seen who he really was. And yet his own family was blinded to the fact that he was their Messiah. That he was the promised one. And he was the firstborn son who gave up his rights so that you and I could know the blessings of our Father. And it's by those wounds that you and I can be healed of bitterness. One of my favorite quotes about bitterness, attributed to many different authors, I don't know who the real author is, says that bitterness is like drinking a cup of poison 
and waiting for the other person to die from it. And what the gospel tells us is that Christ has the one who drank the cup of poison and was willing to die for it so that you never have to drink from the same cup. And I would call you this morning to come to lay your bitterness down at the foot of the cross, to repent of the bitterness in your life, and to know the freeing power of the gospel that we are going to celebrate this morning through communion. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the time to open up your word, to revel in the gospel that frees us from the chains of bitterness. that helps to reorient the fact that we don't have to hang on to bitterness. We don't have to be the judge in every situation, but there is one who is a far greater judge, a far more just judge than we are. And so, Father, would you free people this morning from the chains of bitterness in their lives? Would you pull up the roots of bitterness? Would you get rid of the nasty plants in the garden? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.